0: So um, I'm just going to read them out loud, so if someone's not here, they can add it. So on page 2, under Jesus is the image of God, add John 1.18, Hebrews 1, 1.3, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And on page 3, the last bullet should be changed. It should not be 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13. It should be 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. And then add 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. And then page 5, under bearing God's image in marriage, um, I think you already have Ephesians 5 there, but down lower under your page, we're gonna—I'm gonna just reference a couple other verses: 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Hebrews 4:14 four, to 16, Isaiah 57:15, and Proverbs 16:9. Um, okay, so you can add those up um, or add those to your outline. Um, we only have three more wellsprings after today. Um, next time, Eric Martin will be here with us with a, a lesson that we've never had in Wellspring before. Uh, Chris Evans will be here with a lesson on Abigail, which is so impactful. It, it, would, it would be really perfect to have right after today's lesson, actually. But you'll have to wait four more weeks to get that. And then we'll finish with Smedley coming in um, and closing us with another lesson on the heart to send us off to shepherd our hearts for the summer. Um, today's lesson is a little bit longer, so we'll, kind of like in the old days, we'll take a little break partway through, we'll keep it short, but hopefully that'll help us all stay wide awake. We'll take a little stretch. Um, All right, sorry. Let's go ahead and pray, and I'm going to pray, I'm going to read a couple verses out of Isaiah 55. And I'm also I'm gonna just uh, pray for some of the needs in our body, and I want to encourage all of us to not forget. Keep praying for Matt and Cameron. Keep praying for the Hantlas and little David. Um, Teresa's having surgery on Wednesday. Yes, yeah. So pray for Teresa, um, and there are undoubtedly many, many others. But. Those are a few. It's just such a blessing that the Lord allows us to come before his throne of grace, um, to receive grace and find mercy to help in time of need. And so keep, keep praying for the body. Let's pray together and get ourselves ready to learn together. Heavenly Father, you said in your word, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are Absolutely committed to accomplishing your good purposes through your word. We are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it is powerful and that it is living and that it's active. And our prayer today is that you would let your word do its work in each one of our hearts. Lord, we need you. Thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of you. And we pray this morning you would help us all to be awake and alert and attentive. Lord, help our hearts to be soft. Let your spirit, even now, just take away all the things that would distract us, all of the things that would keep us from getting all that you have for us today. Lord, we also are so thankful for this body that you've placed us in. And, Lord, we are weak. We have many, many needs. And we're so thankful that you sit on a throne of grace and we can come and and bring every need before you. Lord, thank you for Matt and Cameron and their ongoing testimony to your greatness, your goodness, your trustworthiness, your sovereignty. Father, thank you that you are restoring Matt. Thank you that it, it looks like he may be able to come home soon. Thank you for the way you are sustaining Cameron and their children. Father, we do pray that you would continue to grant them new mercies every morning, new grace to keep on trusting you, to keep on persevering with the next thing that they need to do in spite of whether it's an encouraging day or a challenging day. Father, I pray for grace to keep on shepherding children, to keep on um fighting hard to take minds and thoughts captive right back to your word. We do pray that you would heal Matt completely, Lord. We're thankful that you are fully able to do that. Thank you for all that have been touched by them. Lord, thank you for Jacob and Kiki and their family and and so much for David, for all the ways you've sustained David now for four years of treatment. Lord, we pray that you would protect his little body from relapsing into leukemia. Lord, it's been a joy that he's felt better than he has in a long time lately. And yet, Lord, they also are just earnestly waiting for you to provide him treatment. Lord, we pray that you would move to allow him to be accepted into the treatment program in Philadelphia. Lord, we know that your ways are good, that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And, um... Thank you the way you're helping Jacob and Kiki to guard their hearts and to trust you and, Lord, to fight hard against anxiety and worry and fear. Thank you that they are thankful, that they are rejoicing over this respite from treatment that David is enjoying in many ways. Please give the doctors wisdom. Lord, we pray for Teresa, for your mercies for her, for healing and recovery, And, Lord, so many other needs in our body. Thank you that you care so well for us. Help us all to be faithful, to pray for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, have you seen photos that climbers have taken, like, from the top of Mount Everest or something like that? It's just breathtaking you ever seen these pictures are so big and the sun's just at the right angle and and the shadow of this great big mountain just extends for miles and miles and miles (laughs) well that is what my preparation for this lesson has kind of felt like like a view from the top of the world Um, and so it's a big lesson but it needs to be because God's design for us to bear his image is breathtaking It's beautiful. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to survey scripture from Old Testament to New Testament, and we're going to take in God's awesome design for us to bear his image, specifically as women. We live in a time of a lot of confusion. Our culture puts forth a dizzying and contradictory array of messages regarding who we are what it means to be a woman or a man. It's a reality that we now live in a world that does not believe that gender or gender roles are God-given or that they should be. So it's all the more essential that we have a biblical understanding of God's design for men and women not only for our own walk with the Lord, but also so we can be a biblical influence on others, on the children in our lives, on our friends, in our workplace, and so that we can display the image of God in unity with one another as a body of Christ and in our homes. Romans twelve two calls us to not be conformed to the world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can understand God's will, God's design for us as his children, as his daughters adopted as his through the blood of Christ. So let's take a look at what God's word says about his design for us. And to do that, we need to start in Genesis 1 and work our way forward to the New Testament several times. The first time we'll do it to understand what the image of God is... And then the second time, we'll do it to understand God's design for mankind to bear his image. And then finally, we'll do it once more to understand his design for us to bear his image as women. So by the time we're done today, Genesis 1 through 3 should be very familiar territory. Okay, on the outline, we're at number one. What is the image of God? So what is the image of God? Well, theologians agree on one thing and that is whatever it is, it must be very important. And after that, they split in every direction. You've probably heard a lot of these. Some say it's the ability to appreciate beauty or to experience emotion or to communicate. Some say it's man's conscience, his memory, his ability to reason or to feel shame. Some say it's just anything that makes people distinct from animals. Um, so the ideas just go on and on, but the best strategy is to let God's word tell us and to look and see what God says about his image. So let's turn to Genesis 1 and we'll start our first pass through God's word. So this is the account of creation and we're gonna start our reading right in the middle of day six in verse 26. So Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, interestingly, in Genesis 1, the author emphasizes that man is made In the image of God, he uses the phrase three times in these verses we just read. And he also uses the word likeness. But he's not concerned here to tell us in full detail what the image of God is. Genesis 1 gives us only an introduction to the image of God rather than a full description. Now, some of the things that are connected with the image of God in Genesis 1 are dominion over the created order. God wants an image bearer to exercise dominion over other creatures. We saw that in verse 26. Second, we see that the image of God in man is connected to a plurality, a differentiation. If we look on God's side, he said in verse 27, let us make man in our image. He uses the plural pronoun. The Godhead is introduced, although the totality of the Trinity is not unfolded, but there's a hint here um, that the Godhead has an image, and their diversity as Father, Son, and Spirit is connected with that image. Um, and there's also diversity that we've seen on man's side. God created man male and female, God intends two genders to be a reflection <laughs> of his image. Now, the third thing we see connected with the image of God in Genesis 1 is unity in both God and man. There is plurality or differentiation, but there is also unity. There are three members of the Godhead, and they are one God. And the same is true on man's side. There are two genders. But in Genesis 2.23, when Adam first saw Eve, he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She was different than the animals. There was a likeness that she uniquely bore to Adam. And then we also see in Genesis 2.24 that the man and woman became one flesh in marriage. And finally, in Genesis 1, we see that God's intent for image bearers is to fill the earth. In Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He wants his image displayed all over the planet. So those are four things that are connected to the image of God in Genesis 1. They're not the whole image of God, but they introduce it. Now, surprisingly, as we continue through the Old Testament, God reveals very little about his image. In fact, we can summarize it in two points. We see, first of all, God's restriction on image destroyers. You have that at the bottom of page one on your outline. Now turn over to Genesis 3. In order to understand how God's image bearer became an image destroyer, we need to read Genesis 3. In fact, Genesis 3 is a key chapter in the Bible, and we're going to be returning to it over and over today, over and over again today. So let's read all of Genesis 3 and its account of man's fall into sin. It's kind of long, but it's going to make the rest of the lesson so much clearer. So go ahead and follow along with me. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crappy than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for eyes, sorry, she's trusting in her eyes, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself and he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree of which i commanded you not to eat the man said the woman whom you gave with to be with me she gave me from the tree and i ate then the lord god said to the woman what is this you have done the woman said the serpent deceived me and i ate The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. "'Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. "'And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. "'The Lord God, listen to his mercy, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. "'Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, "'and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat.' And live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east end of the garden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so in Genesis 3, Eve was deceived. She ate the fruit, she gave it to Adam, and then we find the image of God hiding from God in the garden and after the fall we quickly see the image bearer become the image destroyer we're on page two of your outline you see Genesis four there in Genesis four Cain kills Abel one image bearer killing another image bearer God took that personally one of his masterpieces was dead destroyed by another image bearer and after that sin multiplied on the earth Uh, to the point in Genesis 6 that God was sorry that he made man. In Genesis 9, we see that after the flood, God, the image maker, makes a restriction on the image destroyer. He implements capital punishment. Noah is a fallen image bearer, but God still considers man to be an image bearer sin marred god's image in man terribly but it did not destroy it completely the image of god is still present in some way and so destruction of one image bearer by another is punishable by death so god's original intent was for man to multiply and display god's image all over the earth but what's he doing he's not displaying god's image he's destroying it Now, secondly, we see God's restriction on image makers. Go ahead and turn to Exodus 20, verse 3. The Old Testament clearly shows man's proneness and desire for idolatry. We already saw that that destroying the image of God was a serious, sinful provocation to God when man would kill man. But equally serious is this provocation, that man would take up making counterfeit images and flooding the earth with those. God has something very strong to say about this very early on in history. So read with me Exodus 20. This is the Ten Commandments, and he says in verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness not any image. Verse five, you shall not worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And the most basic thing we see here is that when an image or an idol was made, God did not see it as himself. God is not honored by man's attempts to make an image of God. Rather, he's offended by it. Yahweh is restricting them from image making. And why might that be? Because there's already an image of God on the earth, right? It's man. But again, man is rebelling against God. God already has an image of himself on the planet, but man is discontent with that and wants to make his own images. Now, who carved the first image of God? God did when he made Adam and Eve. So the restriction in Exodus 20 reveals that God reserved the creating of images for himself. He alone gets to fashion the image. He did that when he created man, and that's the only image he wants. Now, making images may very well be man's attempt to be God, to dethrone God. But God puts a restriction there to help man be content with being the image bearer and not let him become the image maker. That is reserved for God alone. So, the Old Testament does give us some insights into the image of God. But, throughout the Old Testament, what also continues about the image of God is the absence of a specific definition of what it is. So, why might that be? Well, the reason that the fullest description of God's image is not in Genesis 1, or anywhere else in the Old Testament is because God had a plan to reveal his image most clearly in his Son. The image of God and its fullest display is so precious to God that he would not reveal it in its fullness until he could do it in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. So we're at C on the outline. Jesus is the image of God. Colossians <laughs> 1.15 right. says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We see this same idea in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, again, Christ is the image of God. And so if we want to know what the image of God is, we look to Jesus. The first place that we're going to do that is in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. So go ahead and turn there with me. And as we read these verses, look for what you learn about the image of God in Christ. Okay, Philippians 2 6. <clears throat> All right, so Philippians 2 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus existed in the form of God. That word form is very similar to the word image. And then he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but verse 7 says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, being in the form or image of God did not lead Jesus to promote himself, to fight for his rights, but rather he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. We see in Jesus that the image of God is that of serving and giving, not grasping for yourself, your own ideas, your rights, your own self-definition, but of humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. Now, the second key way in which Jesus shows us the image of God is in his unity with the Father. John 10.30 says, in John ten thirty, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, one, perfectly united, eternally joined in seamless unity. It's what we saw in Genesis 1, both unity and diversity in the Godhead. So we see in Jesus that God's image is self-giving, sacrificial, servant-hearted love, completely in unity and oneness with his Father. Or we could summarize it this way. God's image is seamless unity, cemented in self-giving love. Unity and love. Each of the three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reveals the image of God to be this image of seamless unity, cemented in self-giving love. Each of the three manifests this self-giving love toward the others. The father loves the son. The son loves the father and gives himself over to the father's will to redeem his people. And the spirit gives of himself to reveal the son to his people. And none of their unity is diminished by their diversity of roles within the Godhead. Their different work, their differences work in perfect love and unity. And because there is this self-giving love that flows between the members of the Godhead, they're so unified that they can be spoken of as one. To diminish any one of their unique roles would cause us to miss something about who God is. And it's that unity and that self-giving love that God created man to reveal about himself. That's the image in which men and women were created to bear this kind of seamless unity cemented in self-giving love. So that brings us to number 2 on the outline, mankind as God's image-bearer. So now that we know what the image of God is, we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and focus on God's design for mankind to bear his image. We're at letter A, created in the image of God. We already read Genesis 1:26 and 27, and we saw that God created man in his own image, according to his likeness. And we also saw he created man, male, and female. That's his design. Male and female were created in the image of God. Neither one has more or less of God's image than the other. And then next we see, b, God's image corrupted in man, even though both men and women were created in the image of God to bear his image of unity and self-giving love, we have also been equally impacted by and corrupted by sin. After man was created in God's image in Genesis 1 and 2, right around the corner in Genesis 3, we saw sin enter the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's majesty, his awesome power, his perfect design and abundance. We can't even relate to that kind of perfection and innocence. But unfortunately, we can relate to Genesis 3. So we go from the wonders of his creation in chapters 1 and 2 to very familiar territory by the time we get to chapter 3. We saw that the serpent came and slandered God and Eve's heart was enticed away from being self-giving to being self-grasping, tarnishing the image of God in her. That's what we do when we live for ourselves, when we grasp self-rule instead of trusting God's rule. So Eve sinned and then Adam gave in and two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And we have all been plagued by that ever since. Now, C on the outline is restored to bearing God's image in Christ. Go ahead and turn to Romans 8, 28 and 29. Here we get some good news. When God saved us, through the gospel of his son, he restores in us the ability to bear his image. Now, Romans eight twenty eight is very familiar. It's a promise that we cling to, and we're going to see that this promise is connected to bearing God's image. So let's read Romans eight twenty eight and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So, what is the good that God is accomplishing for those who love God? He's making us like Jesus. We can be confident that he is causing all things to work together to conform us to the image of of his son. That is what happens when a life is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a rebel comes to repentance and faith in Christ, she's forgiven. She's made a new creation. She has peace with God. She's freed from sin's rule and mastery over her. She has laid aside the old self and she's being renewed. Her life increasingly displays the image of God, his unity, his self-giving love, as she now lives for him and obedience and faith. She's being conformed to the image of her Savior. Now, this is so important to understand because this impacts not only how each of us lives individually, but especially how we live with each other as the body of Christ. I mean, we can't live out this image of God without each other. Right? What does self-giving love and unity look like when you're all by yourself? Um, so let's turn to John 17. This is one of the places where we most clearly see God's heart for believers to bear his image of unity and love. We'll begin reading in verse 20. So it's John 17:20. <coughs> and so I'll listen to Jesus' heart as he prayed on his last night with his disciples. This is hours before he went to the cross. And he says, he's praying in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word." So he's praying for us here, that they may all be one. Now, what kind of oneness does Jesus have in mind? Well, he tells us, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. That's a powerful unity. It's just like the unity of the Godhead. And Jesus prays for our unity so that others understand what's true about him. Our unity puts God on display. Verse 22, he prays the glory which you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. There it is again. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that the world would know something about God's love through our unity. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's pouring out his heart to his father, asking that we, as the body of Christ, every last one of us, be one. Because that's how the world can know something about him. Our unity, our oneness reveals him. It puts his image on display. And that unity is impossible without love. Colossians 3.14 says, beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's the image of God. Seamless unity in self-giving love. We get to display that in our love and unity with one another. So is it even an option to be a lone ranger? To be careless? about fellowship with the body of Christ. Did you hear Jesus' prayer? Isolation is not for believers. Believers are saved into the body of Christ, and God makes himself known. He displays his image through our oneness and our unity and our connectedness and our love and care and service and encouragement toward one another. And in that, we get to display God's image of unity and love to a lost world. So, let's see, where are we at here? Within the body of Christ, we have a lot of diversity, don't we? We have women from virtually every season of life here at Grace Bible Church. And it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Different seasons of life, different places in our walk with the Lord different gifts, abilities, opportunities, and that's God's kindness to us as a body. Whatever season we are in is his good plan, not only for us, but also for our church. But it's important that we carry our understanding of image bearing into our understanding of the diversity that God puts in his church. We need to understand God's design is that we bear his image in whatever season we're in. We need to appreciate the ways in which his image is put on display in other people's season of life. We need to trust him for changing our season of life. You know, any married woman can become a widow, and God can bring a husband to any single woman. And we need to encourage, and build up, and learn from those who are on di- from those who are in different seasons from our own. God's design for unity, even with our different roles and gifts and different seasons of life, is beautiful. And it's God's design for us to show the world something about himself that we can't show by ourselves. It's important. It's worth laboring for, persevering in, because apart from depending on the Lord, we'll only let our differences separate us. But in Christ, our differences become a beautiful platform for displaying Christ. And so I want to encourage each one of us to cultivate unity, to, to pursue it. Good, solid, Christ-centered relationships, not only with women who are in the same season of life as we are, that's great, but also in different seasons. You know, it can be challenging. We have different availability, different responsibilities, but with some thoughtful, prayerful effort. We can cultivate this unity and love. You know, we might need to try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and think about what the benefits and challenges of their season of life might be. Maybe we need to ask, what are some of the unique opportunities God has given you in your season? What are some of the challenges? How can I pray for you? We can send encouraging messages to each other. If we don't have a lot of time available, then maybe we can exercise together cook together, fold laundry together, go to the park. If you make an extra big batch of soup, give some away. Connect with somebody that way. Invite someone over for dinner. Don't assume that your season of life is harder than someone else's. Don't assume that someone else has more free time than you. Don't wait for someone else to reach out to you. God is the one ordering each one of our days. And we cultivate this unity and love that displays the image of God as we encourage one another to be faithful in the season he's given to each one of us. All right, so we've seen that Jesus is the image of God. Man was created in the image of God, um, but sin corrupted the image of God in us. And we've seen that believers are restored to bearing God's image to the gospel. We get to bear his image of unity and love in the midst of our diversity as the body of Christ. So one more time now, we're going to go back to Genesis 1, and this time we're going to look at God's design for us to display his image in our diversity as men and women. So we're at number three on the outline, bearing God's image as biblical women. And we'll start with letter A, the complementarian view of biblical manhood and womanhood. Now, we already saw that men and women are both made in the image of God, that both are equally corrupted by sin, and that both can be saved through Jesus' death on the cross. Men and women can be restored to bearing God's image through the gospel. And these truths are collectively referred to as spiritual equality, and they're affirmed throughout God's word, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Men and women have spiritual equality before God and each other. Now, maybe that sounds familiar if you've taken the membership class, Biblical Conviction Number Seven, it's on our website um, and it explains biblical manhood and womanhood in terms of spiritual equality and role differentiation. This is called the complementarian view of manhood and womanhood. And you received this handout today, um, and it has it just has this this biblical conviction printed out. We're we're going to cover most of this in the course of our lesson today, Um, and I want you to have it as a resource to refer back to as well. All right, so we've seen that God's word affirms the spiritual equality of men and women, but it also clearly teaches that men and women have different roles assigned to us by God. There's role differentiation in our families and in the church, and that's part of God's design us to display his image of unity and love. And so one more time, we're going to walk through God's word in order to better understand the different roles God has designed for men and women. So turn to Genesis 2, 18. Now, Genesis 2 is before the fall, before what we read in Genesis 3. There's no sin in the world at this point. And in Genesis 2, 18, we read then the Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone I will make him a helper suitable to him Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called a living creature that was its name the man gave name to all the, gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky to every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman, the rib, which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It was Adam who was first created and then Eve. God created man for a particular task, and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to complement him in fulfilling the task of taking dominion of the earth. So God created Eve. Now, Adam didn't need another Adam. He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. And then um, another way that we see different roles is in Genesis 2.15, God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was even created. And yet, we saw in Genesis 3 that Eve knew the commands as well. So evidently, God had entrusted Eve's instruction to Adam. So right here in Genesis 2, we already see differing roles for men and women before the fall, before sin had entered the world. And notice that God created man first and then the woman. God had an order in mind when he created, an order that Paul appeals to in the New Testament as an explanation for our different roles. This is uh, references written here are where you can go to see that. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that women were created that women were created in God's image and that we were created to be distinct from men. Not identical, but complementary, equally bearing God's image as we fulfill different roles. Now, God established that men would be in leadership roles right from the beginning. He created us in a different order with different roles, and it was good. That all happened before the fall. So let's turn to page four of our outline. Now, as we saw in Genesis 3, unfortunately, sin entered the world, and it distorted our God-given differences. Now, remember, man man and woman already had different roles prior to the fall. The roles were not introduced as punishment because of the fall. Our roles are not God's punishment at all. And the distortion of our roles didn't start when God pronounced the curse to women in Genesis 3.16. It started in the very beginning of Genesis 3. We saw, we saw Eve in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter, and he's evil. He's deceptive. In verse 6, we saw that she believed his lie and that if she gave in, she'd become wise, that God was keeping something from her, and so she disobeyed God and ate. And then she gave to her husband, and he rebelliously ate. So when Genesis 3 begins, who is Eve listening to? Who is she trusting in? She's trusting in herself, in her own understanding. Think about Eve. What was her sin? We can identify independence, self-grasping, self-reliance. What was she doing listening to the serpent anyway? She trusted her own judgment. She was getting out from under God's authority, out from under her husband's leadership and protection, and seeking to satisfy herself. She was rebelling against God. Now, at that point, was Eve bearing God's image of a servant, of self-giving love, of unity with her husband under God's commands? Was she fulfilling her role as a helper to Adam? (laughs) How does she acknowledge Adam's leadership over her? How does she honor God's right to define her role? Now, Adam certainly had his part, and he's fully responsible as well. But in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed the lie that she could trust anything or anybody other than God. And as we live in this mixed condition, thankfully on this side of the cross, this is very familiar to us as well. How do we see that in our own hearts? Just like Eve, we may independently step out from the protection and leadership God has provided through the authorities he's placed over us. Our husband, parents, church leaders, employers, government. For married, we may independently step out from our husband's protection and leadership and try to grasp his authority. We may do it by taking charge, seeking to control, trying to manipulate as we exert our own will, stepping outside God's design and falling into the same deception and sin as Eve. Now, you may be thinking, I'm pretty sure I don't try to control, but... It can show up in various ways, can't it? You know, some of us trying to control may be a quiet, silent treatment. Sometimes that hostility can take on an attitude of coldness, indifference. With others, it's a shouting hostility that isn't much of a secret to anybody. For some of us, we just have a way of bulldozing right over others with our words. I'm guilty of that. That's what sin does. Sin... Sin is what distorts our God-given differentiation of roles. Do you know why God gives us roles? It's because he has something to communicate through them. And sin seeks to destroy that image through undoing the roles that God has for us. Sin distorts our God-given role differences. When Adam and Eve sinned, were consequences. They forfeited life in the goodness of the garden. They lost unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain and childbirth. Work is now full of toil and difficulty. No part of life, from birth to the grave, has been left untouched by the corruption of sin. There's also death, and most seriously, separation from God. Adam, Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we're no different. See, equal rights. Men Gender identity, that's not the problem, like the world would have us think. We need to acknowledge the problem is sin. Sin warps everything, and sin is the reason we need a Savior. Now, continuing through the pages of Scripture, we see the same pattern of spiritual equality and role differentiation. And remember, when we say spiritual equality, we're not talking about equality as in equal rights or something like that. Spiritual equality means we're all sinners equally in need of salvation, we equally share in the blood of Christ, and we're equally called to be used in his kingdom in our differing roles. Now, in Old Testament Israel... Men were responsible for the national and religious leadership from the garden to the final prophets, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then we have David and the rest of the kings. We have the priesthood of Israel. We have the prophets. And then there were also women who were also active in the religious life of the nation. Miriam and Huldah were prophetesses. Deborah was a judge. But what we do not have in the Old Testament is significant. There were never any women priests or heads of tribes or kings. That's significant. And that was the Old Testament. Um, under Gospels, the Gospels of Jesus' ministry on that line, when we look at Jesus' ministry, we find the same thing. There's a consistent pattern. This is God's plan from way back, and it's continuing And Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with men in the midst of a woman demeaning Greek and Roman and even Jewish culture. In that culture, women were possessions, not even worthy to be taught the Torah, God's word. In fact, they believed it was better to burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, Women couldn't understand spiritual or theological truth. Men in Jesus' day normally would not allow women even to count change into their hand for fear of physical contact. But Jesus dramatically countered this godless view of women. Jesus uses illustrations and images familiar to women and useful to women. He revealed himself as Messiah, to women. When Jesus visited Mary and Martha, Jesus taught Mary as she sat right at his feet. That was very countercultural. Jesus touched women. He allowed women to touch him. In John 20, Jesus revealed himself first to Mary Magdalene after he rose from the dead, sending her to tell the men, despite the fact that Jewish courts wouldn't allow women to witness because they were considered to be liars. Mm. So you see, in Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and respect in a way they had never known in their culture. He did not demean women ever. All of this demonstrated their spiritual equality. Jesus, at the same time, did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also never did, though clearly he could have, is to choose any woman to be among the 12. That would have been the perfect time to do that, a prime opportunity to change what God had so far revealed in the Old Testament, a time to establish a change for women's roles. But he didn't change women's roles. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't choose women disciples? It's because Jesus is affirming and continuing God's view and God's pattern for the role of women established way back at creation. And the rest of the New Testament affirms the same thing. We're at New Testament epistles on the outline now. Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. But for you are all one in Christ Jesus redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another, ever. For example, in your outline, Acts 18.26, Priscilla and his wife Aquila, they ministered together. They equally served Apollos to build him up with more complete teaching about the Christ. Um, Also on your outline, Philippians 4, 2 and 3, Euodia and Syntyche are two women who shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. And there are many other women that Paul lists in his letters as being gospel servants. Both men and women receive spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that the wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. However, there are still differences. You know, it's easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament. We love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and it is, praise God. We love that men and women have an equal need for Jesus. We have an equal cleansing in his blood. But ladies, the gospel is on display every bit as much in the different roles that he gives for men and women in the New Testament. He's designed different roles specifically for us in order that we can participate together in displaying the image of God. Remember, we've seen this all the way from Genesis 1. Oneness and diversity, both in the Godhead and in man. And we need to remember that what we see in the word is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It wasn't inspired by the culture of the day. We can trust God's design. Now, under bearing God's image in the church on the outline, you see a whole list of references where different roles and responsibilities for men and women are described in the New Testament. And to summarize them, we would say this. For leadership roles in the church, the elders and deacons are offices filled by men. Men are primarily responsible for the teaching and protection of the body. As our leaders, they keep watch over us. They guard us. They're an example to us. They equip us. They build us up. They take care of the church. They serve the church. They labor diligently. Men have an incredible responsibility to display Christ-like shepherding care as his loving servant leadership toward the body. What a responsibility they have. And God's word tells us to appreciate them. And esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, for women, the role, roles, and privileges that God has given us display our trust in God's leadership for us through our church leaders. So we respond, we follow the lead of our elders and deacons, <clears throat> we learn from them, we imitate their faith, we obey. We submit so that their work will be a joy and we serve and help cultivate the unity of the body so that together we more fully display Christ. We use the gifts and abilities and resources God has entrusted to us as we serve under their leadership and in cooperation with their leadership. We display the unity and self-giving love of Christ as we bear him, his image as we serve under their leadership. So we serve in our minis- as, excuse me, when we serve in the ministries in our church, they're all overseen by elders and deacons. Wellspring is overseen by the elders. And I love that. There's protection. Our elders, they love the Lord and they love his people and they serve us in their leadership. We need their shepherding. I'm so thankful that we have that. So this is all about how God displays his shepherding care for his people and how we as his people trust and follow him. So that brings us then to see bearing God's image in marriage on the outline. Let's see. So this is on page five. Now remember, we've seen God's desire to have his image displayed in all the earth. So as we move from the church to marriage, let's think about a parallel here. The first Adam was created in God's image and was given a bride, Eve, to help him display that image. But that all failed miserably in sin. And so Jesus, God's son, the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the second Adam, who is the image of God, he came and God gave him a bride. That's the church. Revelation 21 calls the church the bride of the Lamb. God gave Jesus that bride to help him display his image everywhere to the ends of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? Awesome. And it's this relationship between Christ and the church that Paul had on his mind when he wrote Ephesians 5. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5 with me. Paul uses this relationship between Christ and his church to assign a very unique privilege to marriage. Now, not all of us are married, and none of us are in a perfect marriage, but there's a bigger message that we need to understand. If you're not married, there are still many authorities in your life to whom you must submit and cultivating biblical heart attitudes about marriage and submission will prepare you if marriage does come. It also equips us to encourage others, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, and their marriages. We need to have a high biblical view of God's design to display the church's love for Jesus in marriage. So read with me and listen to how often Paul refers to the church in the midst of his teaching about marriage. <clears throat> Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself, being the savior of the body, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So here Paul is teaching on marriage, and the whole time he's highlighting the church's relationship to Jesus. He wants to shine a spotlight on this precious relationship between Jesus and the church. So we need to understand this. Marriage is about displaying the way God relates to his people and the way his people relate to him. That is to be unfolded in our marriages. Isn't that so much bigger than what we tend to think? Marriage has the incredible privilege and responsibility of showcasing Christ's love relationship with his church. So what does that mean for a wife? What role does a wife play in marriage in displaying that? Ephesians 5.22, we read, Wives be subject to her own husband as to the Lord. Verse 24, we read, As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then in verse 33, The wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The wife displays the image of God in marriage by willingly... Yielding herself to the authority God has placed over her in her husband. Submission literally means to line yourself up under. It's how a wife is to posture herself under her husband's rule. And so just think about this for a minute. God saved us out of being self-grasping. And now... We get to give ourselves away to display Jesus. And if we remember that, that we're now being renewed in the image of Christ, of unity and self-giving love, then submission is a privilege. It doesn't display his image to be self-grasping, contentious, complaining, controlling, manipulative irritable. That doesn't display his image at all. Neither does it display Christ to offer some kind of outward compliance without truly desiring and pursuing love and unity from our heart. It doesn't display Christ to think about marriage as a ball and chain, or as that which is supposed to make us supremely happy. Marriage is neither of those things. Now, as believers, our treasure, our joy, our heart's delight is in Jesus. He frees us from slavery to self to serve him. And if we're married, we do that by submitting to our husband. Marriage is a precious opportunity to display the submission of the church to Jesus and we need to recognize that men have a weighty call and a wife helps her husband not by taking over not by criticizing not by doing it her you know taking the lead into her own hands but by following him respecting him being supportive encouraging praying for him being a faithful sister in Christ Even if a woman's husband is not a believer, his wife needs to be understanding of how challenging his role is, and she needs to live with him in such a way that he is encouraged and strengthened to fulfill those responsibilities. He needs to be appreciated for what he does do and for the role that God has given him in her life. Biblical submission is challenging. But God's calling on husbands is not easy either. Think about what Ephesians 5 has given a husband to do. To love his wife like Christ loves the church. No days off. A job that's never done. A standard that's impossibly high to love as Christ loves the church. Let that fuel in us a tenderness a desire to make his role as easy as we can by submitting to our husbands as to the Lord and by encouraging other women to do so as well. That's how a wife gets to selflessly portray the submissive church. Selflessly, because that's the image of God in Christ. He did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life away. That's what service is. It's giving ourselves away. Jesus gave himself away, and we selflessly give ourselves away in submissiveness. We portray the submissive church. Whether we are single or married, we all have the privilege of displaying our trusting submission to the Lord by submitting to the authorities God has over us, whether it's in our family. Church, workplace, or government. We display God's image, the self giving love of God, by having a quiet and gentle spirit, which is beautiful in God's sight. See, when we fulfill our God given roles and we live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders, under our husbands, under other authorities, The word of God is honored. The gospel is put on display. We actually demonstrate to one another and to the watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship with his bride. It's exciting. It's good. That's why we embrace who God has created us to be because God has something to reveal about himself to us and to the world, not only through our spiritual quality but also through our different roles. We'll find freedom and joy not in casting off his design, but in embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is knowing Christ and making him known. We must be women who embrace what God has given us to make him more visible. Okay, (sighs) deep breath. Today, we've looked at God's beautiful design for us to bear his image as women. And it's glorious, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing. And yet, it's very humbling, isn't it? You know, for one, it's just a very high call. We're still in a mixed condition. This is a lifelong pursuit, a lifelong process of fighting hard for sanctification so that we grow in displaying Christ's image more and more. It's also humbling because it can make us more aware than ever of our regrets, failures, our own sin, our failing to display the image of Christ, especially in our homes. And as glorious as it is, it can be difficult to hear because it reminds us of our losses, our griefs, our longings, dreams that have been shattered or never fulfilled. And so what do we do? with these realities of living in a fallen world, well, where else can we go? We flee to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Our God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Jesus is our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Isaiah 57, 15 says, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So we draw near to him. And where we have grief, we grieve. Where we have sin, we repent. Where we've been sinned against, we forgive. And we receive his comfort and his forgiveness and his reviving. And we draw near to his throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And we trust Amen. that though in our hearts we plan a course for our lives, the Lord has determined our steps that's good news we're exactly where he wants us to be to display his image of unity and love right now <coughs> so to conclude let's connect this all back to our wellspring disciplines maybe you noticed i skipped that discipline 1 we must shepherd our hearts as we clearly behold our god in his word and worship him he grants us grace to increasingly display his image of seamless unity and self-giving love. Discipline too, as we shepherd our hearts, he grants us grace to display his image in our homes. We display his image by pursuing unity, pouring ourselves out in self-giving love with the people in our homes and families. We display his image by living in respectful, joyful submission under those in authority over us, especially our husband. It's our privilege to display the precious love of the church for her Lord Jesus. Discipline three, his image must also be put on display in the church, in our unity, our love, our appreciation of all the diverse members that God has assembled together. And by embracing the role he's given us as women, as we submissively obey and serve and encourage and employ all our gifts for the building up of the body under the servant leadership of our shepherds. And by God's grace, the church will be strengthened. The gospel mission will advance to the ends of the earth, putting God's image on display everywhere, all for the glory of our great God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you are such a great and mighty god lord it's beyond my comprehension that you would make us in your image that you would want to display your image through us thank you for jesus oh jesus you are the image of the invisible god i pray that each one of our hearts would be thirsty to drink deeply of you in your word, to behold you in your word, to know you, to see your image, and to be transformed more and more into (coughs) your image. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word, that it's true and it's powerful. Thank you for your great salvation. Uh, Father, as we go now, I pray for our discussion groups. I pray that you would lead us, guide us, use this time to cement these lessons in our hearts and minds.